everybody, welcome to another episode of the Future Leader Experience. It's my pleasure today to introduce a good friend of mine. He is a final year law and politics student at the University of Manchester, and he's also the Vice President of the Manchester University Law Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce to the show Mr. Anthony Alnoa. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, how have, how have you been, man? I've been okay. Lockdown has been quite hard, um, especially when it's combined with exam season. But it's been a great time of self-growth as well and a time to really explore myself and what I like and what I don't like. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I started reading new books, new genres. I started listening to new types of music. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a good time for me. I know you have a very extensive uh, Spotify list. Who, who, who's new for you? Well, I listen to very different genres of music, really. I, I don't have a specific genre that I like. And um, recently I've discovered many great artists, um, such as Snow Allegra, for example. She's pretty well known, I, I'd say. And um, I, uh, As usual, Anthony, I have no idea who she is, but I, that's not a disrespect to you or her, but I'm just uh, not as, how do you say, as uh, well-versed. In the music uh, it's, world. It's very pop soul. I think yeah. you would like it. Okay. All right, enough of the lockdown talk. Uh, we'll get into business. Now, for those who don't know you, you are from Lebanon. And I was wondering if you could, uh, for those people who aren't as familiar with um, that country, your country, I was wondering if you could t- tell us more about your time and uh, your experience of the great country of Lebanon. Well, if you want to describe Lebanon in one word, it's really a potpourri. Potpourri. It's a mix of too many different cultures. Mm -hmm. Well, not too many. It's not negative at all, actually. It's it's a country that is um, bordered by the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. And um, it it has a very Mediterranean culture, but also very Arab culture. And so it's it's a cultural mix between Europe um, and... Turkey, which at the time were colonizers of Lebanon mm-hmm. under the Ottoman Empire, and we also had we were colonized by the Romans and the Greeks, and so we have this cultural baggage that comes from Southern Europe, and at the same time we have a very cultural, very deep um, Arab cultural background as well, mm. um, and um, yeah, so that's why I say it's a potpourri of different types of cultures. Um, we were also under French mandate, and so everyone in Lebanon speaks French as well. Mm-hmm. So French, English, English, and Arabic are the three um, languages used for communication in Lebanon. And um, and yeah, it's, it's a nice country. There's the sea, and there's the mountains. It snows, it rains, and it's mm. sunny at the, in the same day. And um, yeah, it's... So kind of like Manchester, then? Not at all. <laughs> not it's at all. warmer. It's warmer, way warmer. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really a mix of cultures. Usually in Lebanon as well, the population is very, um, mixed. So everyone in Lebanon has different origins. You can see people who are very pale, Mm. uh, in Lebanon. You can also see people who are quite, um, dark skinned and, um, they just have different, um, origins going to generations and generations back. But at the same time, we all identify under the Lebanese culture. Um, as per religion in the country, it is divided between Christians and um, Muslims, and um, and so the parliament and uh, and all the state entities are actually based on this um, 
kind of Divide. variety yeah. of religions. Yeah. And uh, so it's we live in a sectarian system. Mm-hmm. So uh, parliament seats are divided on the basis of your um, religious affiliation. And so our jobs and everything. And so it's quite a negative point about Lebanon is that we don't know how to kind of go further beyond these, um, these borders lines, yeah. and this divide. But at the same time, you know, it's good that we can live together without clashing, without mm. having these problems. We had a civil war that ended in 1991 and it was a religious based, religiously based war. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that this war ended with... Uh, in 1991 and until today we kind of see skirmishes here and there but at Mm. the same time it's been 30 years since the end of the war and the Lebanese people are more united than ever Mm -hmm. um, today so I think that's a very positive point that um, is obviously fueled by the youth and people who really want to make a change and just go beyond um, looking at what we believe in as the basis of of identity as a Lebanese person, mm. really. So, obviously, you, uh, you're a law and politics student at the University of Manchester. And uh, I would like to be able to tie this in with uh, Lebanon. So, Lebanon has seen its fair share of uh, noteworthy events over the last two years with the protests in late 2019 and the tragedy that was the explosion that rocked the center of Beirut. I was wondering if you could share with us your perspective of these events and, yeah, just share your experiences of what has transpired. Well, it all started in October 2019 Mm -hmm. when the government proposed to introduce a tax on um, software such as WhatsApp Call Mm -hmm. and FaceTime. And... um, the population didn't take that well because our government has been known to be one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Mm -hmm. All the political parties which are in power are known to have links with corrupt uh, companies and corrupt individuals Mm -hmm. all around the world. And uh, they've been the same leaders since the war. So they are the leaders of the war who, after the war, divided the country depending on... um, like their shares so they they divided the country to um, accommodate their um, ambitions in power Mm. and so everyone is fed up of the political class in Lebanon really Mm. and so in October 2019 after the government announced this new measure and this new policy um, Lebanese people took to the streets at some point there was more than a million people in the center of Beirut protesting against the corruption of the government in general um, and specifically targeting the poorest of the poorest. Like, if these people don't have that, you know, like the basic communication means that are for free, what can they do, really? Mm. Like, this this just undermines the poorest of the poor, mm. you know? And, um, and, yeah, so basically protests started erupting all over the country until... Um, COVID hit Mm. and COVID hit at the same time as an economic crisis, Mm. which is really bad um, because the Lebanese lira or the Lebanese pound in English was pegged to the US dollar. And so because of the economic crisis, as $1 used to be equivalent to 1,500 Lebanese liras, it is now equivalent to 8,000 Lebanese liras. Mm. 
And so everything is way more expensive, but at the same time, people are actually being paid their salaries at the old um, rate. Yeah. rate. Exactly. And so it's just really hard for Lebanese people to be able to put up with all this, um, all these hardships, you know. Mm. And, uh, and when COVID hit and all the businesses were closed, in the, first, in, in the first wave in the UK, during the first wave in the UK, actually, in Lebanon, there was barely anything. So Lebanon went into full lockdown two to three weeks before the United Kingdom and any other European countries mm. because the government was wary of the risks. And, um, and so the peak was 66 cases a day, which was amazing, until around mid-July and August. At that time, the crisis was hitting really hard and all the businesses were technically closed. Very few businesses were open. Restaurants weren't to their full capacity. Supermarkets were implementing measures to reduce the number of citizens going to um, shop. And um, most of the shops just because of the crisis, couldn't deal with importing new uh, new products anymore. Mm. And so everything was going at loss. And, and just, there was no, like, the power of purchase was really, really low. People couldn't go out. And so the situation was very dire, I'd say. Mm. Um, I was in Lebanon during the summer, and I have never seen my country like that. Mm. The, there's more than 50 to 60% of the population that is now under poverty rate. Mm. And then on August 4th, 2020, mm. during this summer, at 6.07 p.m., an explosion hit in the, the port of Beirut. And um, it was because of the um, lack of responsibility and accountability that the government in Lebanon has been reflecting really mm. there was ammonium nitrate in the port of beirut which was not monitored and they knew about it they all knew about it and still it stayed in the port for seven years a highly explosive material until it exploded and killed more than 200 people mm. and that was just it for the lebanese people that was you know it was it was hard yeah. for for everyone to kind of understand that we're going through a major crisis in the first place mm -hmm. and then you have this explosion that just destroys your capital city yeah. the biggest city with more than 1 1 million inhabitants mm. and so people started protesting again people started refusing to listen to what the government said um, the government actually resigned and a caretaker government is now in place because our leaders still are clueless, kind of, about what is happening in the country. They do not care. So after the explosion on August 4, none of them actually went to visit the site of the explosion. They, the government resigned, but they're still in talks to make a new government. The same people who killed the population, mm. are still striving for more and more authority. Mm. And so in the past few weeks as well, COVID has been really, really hard to um, concentrate in Lebanon. So we've been seeing more than 3,000, 4,000. At some point, it was 6,100 cases a day um, because of New Year's Eve and the lack of hard restrictions. And so now Lebanon is a full lockdown without 
any businesses open except pharmacies and bakeries. So even supermarkets are closed. You can only order food through delivery. And um, and yeah, it's that that's to counter the high numbers of, of COVID um, cases in the country. Because it's just... And the irony is that the Minister of Health held a dinner on New Year's Eve with more than 20 guests. Mm. And he was not like wearing a mask properly and no one on the table was wearing a mask. Yeah, so you've, you've painted a picture of severe incompetence, of severe corruption. But there's, uh, there's a lot of anger, but also there's a lot of solidarity amongst the people of Lebanon for change. And um, we see that the solidarity from people, Lebanese people across the globe in London, you know, mass protests in uh, support of uh, the people of Lebanon. And I would like to know, therefore, with all that in mind, what is your vision for the future of Lebanon? Well, I think the two things that should be addressed in Lebanon, first is the indifference of politicians. Mm. Because politicians in, Le- in Lebanon act like an elite. So they are sitting at the top of the pyramid, not doing anything at all. They just get a revenue, but in, in counterpart to that, in contrast to that, they don't do anything. They've never helped the people, except when it's one week before the elections, so that they get re-elected and get another salary. Mm. But they do nothing. And so the first thing we should do in Lebanon is abolish this class of middle-aged to old Lebanese men who have lived through the wars and were actually leaders during this war Mm. and who are still now sitting at the top of this pyramid because they're followed like a religious cult. Mm. And so the first thing that I see in my vision is to delete, eliminate this Mm. class of of politicians. And you can only do this through a mass mobilization um, of the electorate Mm. during the next legislative elections. So the turnout in the elections in Lebanon is usually very low because people don't have faith in politicians anymore and it's the same people who represent themselves. And so in the last election, we've seen a pretty good turnout, but it was still very borderline because people are just not bothered, you know, to see the same same names on the same lists and different alliances in different regions between the political parties. So in, for example, Beirut, you can see an alliance between my party and your party. And then in another region, my party and your party could have two lists that are opposed. So it just doesn't make sense. It's all, it's, it's basically agreements from under the table so that they all get reelected and then they all get their share of the cake. Mm. And, um, and so mobilization of the electorate is really important. And to mobilize the electorate, you have to have an alternative. You have to present a clear alternative to those politicians that you want to eliminate mm. from decision-making processes. And so recently there have been efforts to include a lot of people from, from the civil society into politics, but these people are not well known. And Lebanese people, as much as they are um, informed and, and they have a strong culture and they have connections, they're not the type of people who are going to go and Google every single person who is 
representing for the elections to see how competent they are. Mm. And so they, they just don't vote. And, uh, and so we need well-known faces. We need well-known figures who are competent enough to lead the country into a change. What about Mika? Well, Mika, I, I don't really know if he has a citizenship, citizenship really, mm. because I know that his dad is British and his mom is Lebanese, but unfortunately, again, that's another thing that should change. Um, Lebanese women cannot pass the nationality to their children. I see. And so um, I don't really know if he has the passport or not. Okay. But there are we need a lot of well-known figures to lead the elections and to lead the protests in the first place because the protests now don't have a face. Mm. So we know that there is a revolution, but we don't know anyone who's leading this revolution. Mm. So you go in the street, everyone is screaming, everyone is shouting, but you don't know, there is no leader, there is no figure that everyone will recognize who can symbolize this transition to mm. a better Lebanon. Mm. And so this, I think, is very problematic and needs to be remediated ASAP. And, um, and to do that as well, you need to abolish the sectarian system in Lebanon. Because elections, as I said before, are based on what you believe in. Mm. So in cer certain regions, you, for example, elect five Christian um, members to, of parliament. Sorry to clarify. So you're just saying that even though there are quotas along religious lines, there is still equality. So we, yeah. Well, yeah, because it presents equality mm. by dividing by quotas. Mm. Okay. So it is a religiously based system. It is based on your religious affiliation. Um, but at the same time, it provides equality. Mm. And so... Um, well, this is equal representation. It is equal representation yeah. at the end of the day. But this is bad. Because, for example, in certain regions, you can elect five Christians. In other regions, you can elect, for example, three Muslims and two Christians. And that just doesn't make sense because you're harboring this sense of divide between Lebanese people as... This is a Christian region. This is a Muslim region. This is a region with this majority or this majority. And you start seeing people not agreeing because they just have their whole lives based on their religions. So, yeah, so the identities are formed based on these fault lines or these... Uh, exactly. Yeah. And that goes beyond politics. So it goes even in the geographical distribution of the population in Lebanon. Mm. And... Um, and we're fostering this by keeping a religiously based system in Lebanon, whereas the system should be a secular system. The system should be a system where you are elected based on, your, on how competent you are, on how much experience you have, on how much change you symbolize, not on whether I'm a Christian or a Muslim or I have no religion at all. Mm. It's, this is the fundamental problem of the Lebanese society and the Lebanese political scene is that it is all based on what is said on your ID that is your religious affiliation. Mm. And this needs to change, and it needs to, it needs to change now with the youth. Because we are the ones who are aware that the religion doesn't make you a different person. Mm. That your identity is not defined by what time you pray and which day you pray. It's not defined by that. And we, the youth, do believe that religion is not should not be a barrier for us to communicate and agree as a united Lebanese population against all, these, all this injustice that is being done for us. Mm. 
And basically, now if you go to Lebanon in the universities, students are just friends from any religion, any region in Lebanon. They have different, maybe... Um, different education systems. Some people have studied in English, some people have studied in French, some people have studied in private schools or public schools, some people are Muslim, some people are Christian, and it's just this mix of people who actually are friends and don't look at each other from a religious perspective. And I think this is what gives me hope for a future Lebanon where people are going to really create this secular, united society without actually judging each other based on our um, our religions, really. Okay. Well, no, I... Uh... Thank you very much for sharing your love for your country. And I think uh, if Lebanon is still looking for a face of its evolution, I'm, s I'm certain that I'm looking at one of them. Thank uh, you. We will... Uh, Go grab a drink and we'll come back again to discuss your legal career in part two. So stay tuned, guys. Thank you very much. Back, we're here with part two. And uh, in the last part, we were talking about Lebanon and Anthony's vision for Lebanon. Um, and in this part, I was hoping that we could discuss, uh, Anthony, your legal career, your law career. And uh, I'll start off with the most basic one that they ask you in all the interviews for training contracts and pupillages. Why law? Well... To me, if you want to understand the world, you have to understand it from all the perspectives. And um, what interests me in a law career is that um, when you are a solicitor in um, the UK, law is not simply studying what law is um, in the university academic sense of law. It encompasses um, the legal side of things but also the business side of things. And um, that's what encourages me mostly to um, pursue a career in law. Now, as I said before, I'm from Lebanon, and Lebanon is a country that is really reliant on foreign investments. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of problems uh, in the region as well that kind of influenced um, this uh, career path for me because I want to be able to uh, work on matters that are related to foreign investments in um, regions that are emerging and developing and not necessarily developed countries. Um, so just like Lebanon, places where um, foreign investments do make a difference in improving the livelihood of people, um, regardless of whether they face wars or crises. Um, and yeah, I think this is like the main reason why I want to go into um, law. And um, I'm really interested in the creative aspect of law and the strategical aspect of law because law is not as people picture it. It's not just a textbook career where you have to look at the law and then apply it. It's not like that. It's way more interactive with the global markets of today, with um, anticipating your stakeholders' reactions, with um, anticipating the market's reaction 
to um, the actions that you're undertaking, um, whether it's about um, competitors, whether it's about the um, supply chain or anything really like you have to anticipate what people around you are going to to do in reaction to your action um in order to give the best image of yourself and basically sell your brand and uh, and that's why i want to go into law because it balances this legal sp legal perspective with the um business and um strategy perspective of um today's markets I see. No, yeah, that's obviously something that's very important that um, more lawyers need to be aware of, or students or aspiring lawyers need to be aware of going in, certainly the commercial side of things. But as a, as a child or um, as a young student growing up, the, did the traditional or the stereotypical ideas of what a lawyer is the whole sense of fighting against uh, an unjust, uh, in an unjust uh, case, or you know, defending the the, the little guy, um, did that ever, you know, come into your thinking when you decided to become a lawyer, or have you always been um, a visionary in terms of the commercial side of things and understanding the need for? Uh, the com commercial side of, of law? Well, no, not really. Actually, I, I haven't been pursuing a career in commercial law since the beginning um, because you really don't know what a career looks like until you're in the shoes of the person seeking that career or you are in the position, as they say. And so um, how I pictured law before I could talk to people, talk to lawyers, read and research about it when I was a younger younger child... I used to picture law as your typical courtroom drama. Mm. And it was very crime-based, very criminal law-based. And um, that didn't particularly interest me as much as I was interested in the line of thought and the investigation and the creativity put forward by lawyers um, in courtroom dramas who really look for, well unrealistic solutions but at the same time I was inspired by this creativity and I said to myself well you've got this creativity that wouldn't hurt you know in in such a career and even though courtroom dramas again are very unrealistic um, but it gives you that push of wanting to actually make a change by thinking differently thinking outside the box and so I started reading and researching and I found that there's so many branches to a law career and um, at first I aspired to become a human rights lawyer because I have seen people in Lebanon who are in the most extreme um, conditions, people who um, don't enjoy the human rights that they are meant to enjoy, people who are being discriminated against, people who are being beaten, people who are being looked at differently. And so I decided to become a human rights lawyer originally. But um, at university, I was really fascinated by the um, careers prospects of commercial law. And actually, working in commercial law would not prevent me from doing pro bono work at the same time um, in order to also achieve this part of my dream that I really wanted to do. Mm. And, um, and yeah, so commercial law is um, a career that I think is sustainable and that can, in the future, if I decide 
to um, change my mind and explore something new. It can also um, constitute a really important baggage for me and a lot of transferable skills that I can put forward if I decide to take a career change, which is not what I'm thinking about right now. Um, but in the future, if I'd like to switch again and do human rights law, for example, I can, with the skills I have learned um, in commercial law firms, um, skills of research and skills of creativity, skills of um, communications, I can probably um, convert my career into a career that mm. is um, more human rights oriented or even diplomacy oriented. So I think it's a very versatile career, a career that is rooted in, as I said, creativity, but also strategy and decision making. So you have to be a quick-witted person. You have to be a person who um, measures the um, consequences of their actions. And uh, I think that's what attracts me to commercial law, truly, because I'm you're a great friend of mine. So you know how the way I think, I always think in advance what people's reaction mm. is going to be, not in a negative sense, but I'd like to anticipate what response I'm going to get because at the end of the day, this response is what's going to determine your connection with the, uh, with the other party. Mm. And so imagine you have a company and you are um, undertaking certain actions. The repercussions of these actions are going to determine the place of your company in the market. And so I think this is quite embedded in my personality in the first place and I was quite happy that I found a reflection of how I am in the profile of a commercial lawyer. Mm. No, that, that is, uh, that's fascinating. And um, I really hope that you, I've always thought that you would be very much suited to uh, Thank you. a commercial law career. And, um, but I find it very interesting what you're talking about, the versatility of such a career and tying it in with human rights, uh, being involved in, in pro bono work, for example. And I was just wondering, do you think, or I'll phrase the, the question in, a, in another way, do you think it is important for commercial firms to, as part of their co corporate social responsibility, perhaps use their resources to engage in um, perhaps more pro, pro bono work? Because I know that it... It's something that a lot of firms say they want to do or they, they, they try, but because a career in commercial law is so busy, so um, jam-packed, where does one fit this in and should there be uh, more, of a, more of an emphasis of, of uh, pro bono work? Well, lately there has been an emphasis on pro bono work in the market, um, in the legal industry, I mean. And um, I think it is important for law firms to direct their resources to pro bono work because I do understand that the law firm is a business at the end of the day. But at the same time, you have competent people who are able to make a change and give more people access to justice. So I'm not saying that pro bono work should take the priority, obviously, because a law firm is a business at the end of the day. But pro bono work not only would be beneficial for the lawyer undertaking it, but also to a big part of the community that cannot afford legal representation, that cannot afford access to justice, that cannot sometimes afford education. And that's why there's um, initiatives that encourage um, education of young people who are um, 
lacking basic education. There is there are initiatives that are um, health oriented. There are initiatives that are more human rights oriented. So discrimination, empowerment of the youth, empowerment of women. And I think that it's important because when you're in a position where you are able to make a change through certain actions because you are not privileged, but you are able to you are able to help financially or skill-wise, then I think that it is important for you to concentrate your resources on that, even though it's not completely concentrating your resources on that, if you, if you get what mm-hmm. I mean. So a part of the work should be a part that will help and be beneficial to the globality of the, of the planet, not put them before your clients, but at the same time, it has to... Um, so you as a lawyer should have the conscience of also helping people who do not have access to justice because you are able to help them. And that's why I am encouraged and um, motivated that I will be taking um, pro bono work if I um, work in a law firm or get a training contract at some point in the future. I think it would excite me because not only would it be beneficial to me and to my skills, but I would also be seeing the change that I'm making in the world and just to think that you're improving other people's lives and fighting against injustice is a core part of being um, a person who is fascinated by the law in the first place because no one is above the law and but no one should also be you know alienated from Mm from their basic rights because the law is not only obligations it's rights and obligations and so pro bono works puts puts this emphasis on on the rights of people not only on the obligations not only you have to abide by the law but you also have rights under the law you have people who are here to to support you to help you in order to get these rights and that's why i think pro bono work is is extremely important in a law mm. firm no that's uh that, that answers my question and i and I really do hope that uh, commercial firms in the future really try and mean what they say when they are emphasizing things such as corporate social responsibility and not use it as a buzzword. Well, they are. Lately, in the recent years, law firms have improved their um, public relations profiles Mm. because law firms have this very elitist image in people's perspectives but law firms are lawyers are just people just like you and me and so it's it's a negative image that was given of law firms and to to people and so law firms are trying to polish up this image by saying this is the work that we're doing this is how transparent we are we have a um csr policy we have a um pro bono practice We have um, many networking events. We have diversity initiatives. And so this is not just a buzzword that is used by law Mm. firms, whether it's any of those words that I just cited. They're not used just for the sake of attracting people to applying to jobs because at the end of the day, a law firm can really expand with all the, you know, all the amenities that it can provide lawyers without really putting the stress on these points but these points are today they're pretty important mm. and law firms are trying to engage as much as they can with this not new but kind of more significant in today's world um 
angle of seeing a law firm, which is a business, but it's a responsible business. It is an accountable business. It is a transparent business. It is a diverse business. And um, these characteristics are important in today's world, as I'm just saying. And so law firms are not only using these words to be attractive, but they're also starting to, to make a change. As, as the vice president of the Manchester University Law Society, we've run a lot of events with law firms. And um, I can tell you that we have seen in statistics a big change in the recent years um, in relation to diversity, for example, in relation to sustainability, um, because people are willing to put the effort to make their business more transparent and more re responsible. And, um, and so it's not really just a simple buzzword that is used by law firms. Today, I think that most law firms in the, in the world mean what they do because, uh, mean what they say. And this reflects in what they do um, because the new lawyers entering into these law firms and even the older generations, which are getting more and more acquainted with today's global, um, global perspectives, um, they are willing to undertake these steps in order to um, improve the quality of their business and the quality of the world that surrounds their business. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that lawyers are now in a place of awareness where they do this with, um, with passion rather than just using these words in order to um, attract new, uh, new faces to the industry. Mm -hmm. No, uh, yeah, certainly hope, hope that this is the, the, the case. Now, we've talked about a lot about your um, views on law and your uh, career so far. Now, as a final year uh, law with politics student, um, I was wondering what, and also, of course, as the vice president of the uh, Manchester University Law Society, what would be your advice for aspiring um, lawyers who are probably still in sixth form, you know, 16, 17, younger maybe, and also your advice for people who are also in, uh, who have been in your shoes, who are first and second year, what is your advice, especially in, in these times, for people who want to pursue a career in law? Well, there's one word. I'm just going to sum it up all in, in one word. Networking. Yeah. Go to events. Talk to people. Talk to people in the profession. Talk to people who have been in your shoes. Talk to people in societies who have interacted with members of um, law firms. Talk to as many people as you can who know the industry well. And this, this doesn't only apply to lawyers, by the way. It applies to any career path that you want to undertake. Talk to people who can give you useful information because... Looking at a job from the outside, from the envelope, is not the same as talking to someone who knows the job from the inside, who knows the job in a personal manner, not in an objective manner. And so my advice would be talk to people as much as you can. Try to get as much information out of them because they are willing to give it to you. It's not like you're taking it out of their mouth without them, you know, against their will. People are willing to transmit their experience. And so... Talk to as many people as you can in the industry because that is how you not only make connections, not only gain experience and an insight into what you possibly might want to do, but these people will be helpful. 
to you at some point in the future. And so you can never have enough connections yeah. with people in your field. It's always the more, the better, because that's how much experience and how much advice you can get, you know? Sometimes it might be conflicting advice, mm. but at the same time, when it's conflicting advice, you can hear two different point of views and then make your own assessment. Mm. And so talk to as many people as you can so that you get the most globalistic image and you can form the most um, personal um, opinion on, on the career path that you might want to undertake in the future. Mm. No, uh, I, th I think that is a very good piece of advice especially for, for lawyers. Um, especially a, in law, I yeah, do agree with that. It's a, it's a very, it's a changing industry with um, new challenges that are taking it possibly away from the traditional stereotype, uh, stereotypical view of what a lawyer is supposed to be. Uh, certainly a lot of artificial intelligence um, tools that are being introduced. But I think that is a topic for another day. So with that being said, I'd like to thank you very much for your help, your advice uh, on, on this show. And yeah, I hope that I am looking at one of the future leaders of Lebanon, certainly. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show, Anthony. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a really enjoyable experience and I really enjoyed having this talk yeah. with you and with all the followers. Yeah. Thank you so much. Right. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much.